0: This is Cliff Dogs Podcasts, where Dr. Cliff Harvey chats with cool people doing interesting things in performance,
1: business, health, and the creative arts.
0: So hopefully you're not um hooking into my Wi-Fi, mate.
1: No, no. Actually I should try that. What is what is your Wi-Fi? I'm not gonna tell you what my Wi-Fi is. <laughs> Come on, be a sport. I
0: trust you to a point, Michael, but not not that much. that's right. I'm probably going to leave all this stuff in as well, so you've just incriminated yourself. (laughs) I can cope with that. How are you on this fine day, Michael?
1: I'm actually very well. You know, I'm good, actually. So I've um, powered through quite a lot this morning. I got up early, took the dog for a walk, went through the park. She met lots of her friends in the park and raced around and did stuff. In fact, funnily enough, it was really quite curious, I... um, I was um, wandering along minding my own business and listening to the little birdie sing, and a woman said, oh, uh, hey, and I thought, well, that's interesting, and um, she had met me about four years ago um, through a mutual acquaintance, and she's French, and apparently that she'd, she'd come seeking her some, some advice on what she could do and where she could go and what she could yeah, live on. And I, I have actually no recollection of her. I remember I, I a meeting, but I wouldn't have recognized her in a thousand years. But anyway, that was all fine. So we had a, a good old chat. And um, uh, she asked me what I was doing. And so I told her, and um, I sold her a book. <laughs> so, <laughs> <laughs> never let a chance go by. So she, she was you know, just reminding the fact that um, COVID had discombobulated her totally. I said, Well, have I got a cunning plan for you? So uh, that was good. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Well, that's a good segue, Michael, because I was looking on your um, looking on your website at your bio, and it seems very truncated. Um, I'm sure you've done more than just dropping out of art school. You've obviously been involved in, in advertising, uh, leading some of the biggest agencies around, uh, starting and, and running businesses, and construction, and coffee, and wine, and all sorts. Which leads me actually to a question. I'm not just going to ramble. Um, but you know they say that those who can't do teach, and now that you're in the education space, are you the exception that proves the rule, or do you think that rule is is
1: rubbish? No, I think I, I think that rule is actually very very true, um, and uh, I think that uh, I um, I don't yeah, teaching is not the right word now, to to me. It's imparting wisdom, and, and 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 there's a kind of a difference. Teaching to me is going through a curriculum and telling. A new cohort on a regular basis, the same things, um, and I think that that, that um, I I really enjoy uh, imparting the wisdom that I've gained because well you forgot I dropped out of law school as well, um, and I think, <laughs> I think I think I um, think uh, I think when I look back on on my, it's a, it's a, I've got ADD um, and it's self diagnosed and um, but I. I think by doing all the tests I could online and looking at both my son and my grandson uh, and probably my father and my grandfather, I suspect that there is a genetic um, strain in there that enabled it to, well, not necessarily enable it, but, 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 but is responsible for it. But it's also enabled me to see lots of different things um, and, and be curious about, 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 about lots of different things. And having done that, and most recently, having developed that periodic table of innovation, which is a summary of all the mistakes I've made, I kind of feel a little bit altruistic about it. Uh, and then I think if I can share the mistakes that I've made with others, it might help them avoid making those same mistakes. Or um, on, a, on, a, on a positive note, if they follow the, um, the steps in the table, um, they won't need to make those mistakes. And that's what I found with the cohorts that I have been have been teaching. Although we're now taking it out of the university environment and putting it online, and that's what I like. But what we're doing right now is the thing that I favour: um, just being able to not necessarily talk one to one, but 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 talk one to one to you, but at least have the same message to 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 um, to multiple audiences. And certainly now that the program that we've um, produced over the last couple of years is now being picked up by Others and recognizing that online learning is is going to only grow over the next decade or so, and there is a a generation now that's used to learning that way. And I think that's yeah. the way that's that that's that's what I want to do. Just tap into that tap into that that plumbing and put my my water down the pipes.
0: It's interesting you say that because I think there's a a couple of key messages in there. You know, n- number one that. You know to to do if you can't do you teach is possibly true in some circumstances but when you're taking it outside of the norm uh and and applying it really to that knowledge that can be imparted then it, it doesn't necessarily apply and I, I remember back you know to some of the great teachers i've had they weren't always necessarily the best at at what they did you know i um and that's not saying you're not the best at what you did mike but uh you know thinking back to my weightlifting days you know, coached by Richard Dryden, who was the New Zealand weightlifting team coach at the time. Uh, and, and he, admittedly, you know, self admittedly, wasn't a, the, the greatest Olympic lifter around, uh, but he was a very good coach. Uh, similarly, my, my boxing coach, Chris Martin, uh, was, you know, not a champion boxer. He was a good boxer and a, a very good kickboxer, but again, not a champion, but he was a fantastic coach. And I think sometimes the skills to do are, are quite distinct from the skills to teach.
1: Yeah, I, I, well, I actually, and I'd never heard it put that way, but I think you're actually doing right. I mean, I, um, um, the only two, only two things that I can do are write and draw, um, and and uh, the, the, the there's, I mean, I've got no marketable skills apart from that, but one, and I remember you're selling I,
0: yourself short there, Mike, because you can also talk a lot of shit.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, that, uh, that that's my defense. <laughs> that's what it is. That, that, that 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 that's kind of how I've turned my lack of ability to write and draw into something that's useful, because really? I, and and knowing that I mean it's a, it's the Aristotelian thing you know, that that now that I know a lot I realize how little I know. Um, yeah. I, I, I um, um, when I was at law, at law school, I I was I was hopeless, and I, re- I didn't I was boring. I shouldn't have done it, and I only I only did it out of I only went to law school out of spite when. In my final year at school, I was told I couldn't have first place in class because I'd only done art. And, and the other boys had done proper academic subjects. I mean, the uh, foremost I said, look, this this mark you've got, Hutchison, this you've got an A in oil painting. I mean, how do I compare that with a boy who's done very well in mathematics? I, I, want, a, I want a grade, uh, not a not a, I want a, a, a um, percentage not a grade. And I said, well, so I, I don't think you can give a percentage for, for oil painting. It's only uh, in these sort of categories. And he said, well, I'm not even going to grade you. Um, because um, it just doesn't make sense and uh, I can't compare you to boys who have done academic subjects and so he left me off the list totally and um, rather than giving me a first place, I realised that I'd done something that was useful but worthless, Um, that it was useful enough to teach but it wasn't worth grading and at the time I was also in the the, um, debating club and I had a cousin who's a lawyer. and said, oh, well, you shouldn't You should forget being an art teacher. Um, and I'd already I, I got, I got my fine arts prelim, I was into, and I'd be accepted into Ireland. Um, and and um, I just thought, no, damn it, I'm not going to do that anymore. And um, in fact, the, <laughs> our, voca- our entire vocational guidance at Nelson College came in the form of a, a bloke who arrived from Canterbury University. And, and we sat there, I suppose, whoever we were, I don't know, there must have been 30 of us, I suppose, at all, uh, in the thir- year 13 or sixth form, seventh form, upper sixth form, seventh form. form, seventh form. Um, and we're all off to university. And our vocational guidance consisted of this bloke in the assembly hall saying, okay, all new chaps doing um, medicine over here, law here, accounting here, teaching here. <laughs> and like, oh, okay. So I thought, well, <laughs> because I'd done my diploma of fine arts and thought I was going to have to be a a, 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 um, a teacher. And I didn't really want to be a teacher because my father had been a teacher and I thought I'm going to be impecunious for the rest of my life. And now they won't even give me first place in class because they don't value what I've done. But I went along to the library. There were about four, five or six of us who went along to, um, in the teaching group. And this guy, same guy, um, said, okay, well, chaps, it's wonderful that you've chosen teaching as a vocation because it really is a vocation. It's not just a career. It's a wonderful thing that you're doing. I'm parting your knowledge to a younger generation, and, and it's very fulfilling. But you do have to accept that you'll never own a Jaguar. And, <laughs> I said, and he said, any questions? So he said, where do the guys who want to own Jags go? <clears throat> <laughs> he said, I think you're in the wrong group. And they go to the law, yeah. yeah so I think you can go back to the hall, and, and go." <laughs> that, that was literally what happened. So, I went and wow. all the mates there were four or five mates that were also in the law group. So, well, what do you come back for? I said, oh, no, I'm not going to be a teacher, I'm going to be a lawyer. And it was the most stupid mistake I've ever made in my life because I was following my head rather than my heart. And, um, yeah, and, and I, I was bored witless after two years, isn't remember, that
0: interesting? Because I think you know teaching can be, you know, it's obviously a vocation, it's it's obviously a passion for a lot of people. They get into it with the idea of being of service. But that's quite distinct to imparting your knowledge. Because as a, you know, if I had gone to teacher's training college and started teaching at the age of, what, 21, how much knowledge would I really have yeah. on my own to impart? Yeah. You know, I, I would pretty much be, be rote instructing. And that sort of circles back to something you said before about you know taking what what you're doing now and we'll get into that uh in the practical innovation course and taking that online and all that kind of stuff there's i I think now this awareness that we we can scale what can be scaled and then we leave the that sort of personal instruction and that personal connection uh for when it's most valuable and that's something that I think is, is really just starting to shift now and it's been forced yeah. because, you know, when I got into the education game with the Institute, what was it, seven or eight years ago, one of the drivers for that was the frustration I had of going in and teaching the same lecture yeah. several times a day, yeah. several times a week, yeah. and then having limited time really for the engagement with the students. It didn't really make sense. Yeah. What made sense was to deliver the material because it's the same every time, and then really focus on either the one to one or the small yeah. group, or being yeah. responsive yeah. to the needs of the students.
1: Yeah. yeah, yeah, I think that's exactly right.
0: So, with um, you're now an adjunct professor at AUT for for innovation entrepreneurship, yep. you've got your practical, practical innovation course. You've sort of alluded to some of the reasons for that, but I, I want to dig into that a little bit more because obviously you've you've had a stellar career in advertising, you've been you know, at the top of the game in terms of that creative side of things, but you've also had a lot of other entrepreneurial ventures that have been very successful. So with this now, what's the big why behind
1: the course? The big why behind the course, I think it, it comes from it comes from that experience I had in, in the seventh form at school and being told I couldn't have first place in class because I, I, I don't need an art in English. I, hadn't done, uh, I I hadn't done proper academic subjects. And I and it wasn't until uh, my own kids grew up and, and at age seventeen it was kind of gutting you know, to be told that all your your aspirations and all you'd hoped for um, were worth naught. Um, and um, there, there were there were four of us in doing um, dip fine arts, freedom at Nelson College at the time. Brian Strong, still not, you know, a very well-known um, uh, artist, and when I told our art master in my major that like, I wasn't going to do this, I said you know, I, I feel really gutted. Um, they don't, they don't value uh, what I'm doing. Um, it, it, in hindsight, and when my own kids got to be 17, I thought, what a terrible, th- I, it, what a terrible thing to have said to a 17-year-old. And it, I had never really reflected on it. I was just annoyed. You know, I, I, hadn't, but I hadn't reflected and thought, you shouldn't say that to someone at a, at a tender age. Now. But going back to the point you made earlier, I probably never was going to become a first-class artist. I remember um, um, uh, in in, um, in the group that we had, um, and in in those days, in the in the in the sixties and seventies, there was a um, an art exhibition called the Christchurch Star Secondary School's Art Exhibition, which was um, a little roadshow. It, it was artwork from um, kids from uh, all over the South Island, um, and the um, the entries would be bagged up and shipped from town to town, uh, hung up in the local art gallery and for a few days, and that was it. In that particular year, I had three works in that uh, travelling exhibition, and, and we were given a couple of days off of school to go down and hang it in the in the Suda Art Gallery in Nelson. And I remember feeling you know, very pleased with myself by having these these three pieces, which were pathetic now that I look back on them. But I, I went into one crate and pulled out a painting of a hawk flying over Tussock which was superbly done in a super realistic fashion. It was by a guy called uh, Graham Sidney. And I I said, I took this uh, painting to uh, a master's, look, I can't paint this well. And I knew then that I could be an average artist. I'd be a a tradesman, yeoman-like artist. Um, And I thought uh, that was going to be my lot. I'd I'd go to a secondary school and teach a bunch of 13-year-olds who couldn't give a shit about it. Um, um, uh, and it would be frustrating. I realised that because I'd think like like other, the best moment we ever had in the art room. And my, in fact, my, my first entrepreneurial um, foray was on Thursday afternoons. Our art master took adult education classes in, in, in town. And so he left us alone in the art room and we would invite the boarders in after lunch. And would draw nudes for them. Um, you know, for for, for sixpence they'd get a, a, a girl in a bikini for a shilling. That would be a complete nude, and that was my first understanding that you could actually make money out of doing something. That. And so that, that that it was, I I wasn't taking it seriously. I I, you know, I knew that I wasn't going to be a a, um, a full time um, successful painter. Um, and, and and that is another realization uh, that even with my writing. I know I'm not going to be in it anyway, but but I have I have enough of those skills and enough of an overview, and that was why I think I did well in advertising because I could I could bridge the left brain right brain, yeah, you know? right. Uh, 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 and and I thought that and I, and I had a and there was a message in there that you can make use of your creative skills. See, I believe yeah. I believe that we're all creative, and, and that's if you go, come back to my why I want to encourage people. To find how creative they can be, because otherwise we're going to be um, trivialized and patronized by a world that doesn't recognize the importance of creativity. Right.
0: I was going to ask you about that actually, and you've you've kind of brought it back to it in a really interesting way. Because I was going to ask you about the, you know, the the idea of art and whether you think that that is predominantly innate or whether that's something that's that's learned or, or nurtured. Um, but possibly you've answered that question already because you know you said that everyone's creative and so I'm paraphrasing here but I'm guessing the sort of why behind this course is to help people to to not just be entrepreneurs in a cookie cutter way as we often look at it um, but to actually discover their sort of their their creativity and to exercise that within the business world which I think is something we don't really foster yeah
1: absolutely absolutely I think and I think that that, the whole that whole notion of um to me creativity is a continuum uh, it, 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 you're either an architect or a bricklayer but they both equi- being a human being is creative yeah making cakes yeah. and jam is creative it's not very creative but it's creative we we we, we uh, having children is creative we we do um, um, uh, being alive um, uh, has meaning in itself that uh, we, we we want to, we want to create ourselves i mean there's a good uh, Argument that the universe might be conscious and, and and wants to wants to maintain existence. It could be a, a rock um, and may have a and a very subatomic level um, may may need may need to exist. And I think that, that that's an urge that that we all all have. And I think that we need to be figuring out how good we can be at it because there's no doubt going forward. And COVID has given us a huge whack on the side of the head because uh, it's made us think well. What's this all about really? If these pandemics, yeah. despite all our knowledge, despite all our medical skills and, and that what they call the the, 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 the snobbery of, of, of chronology, because we live after our ancestors, we think we're smarter than them. I doubt it. We might have more knowledge, we might have more um machines and skills and chemicals and stuff to keep us alive. But we're no wiser than than we ever were. In fact I think we've gone from the the Stone Age to the Bronze Age to the um, the Iron Age to to, to um, um, industrial revolution from and we're now going from the Space Age to the Stupid Age. I think we're we it seems to me that, that that the stupidity is compounding in in the world today. And I think if we can help people not just go out, go inside. Doug Hummerfeld said, the longest journey is the journey within. Uh, um, We don't need to get on a cruise liner spewing out bloody dirty smoke and go and visit Venice. Uh, We should actually be be, thinking about how good can we be internally in our own place? I mean, deeply, well, I just feel like sort of going off-grid and sitting down and going fishing. um, Because the world's so stupid, it's hardly worth being in it. (laughs) I look at America at the moment, yeah, the most advanced that nation in the world with the most advanced science, with the most stupid people. Yeah, and, and they could take us all down. And a whole bunch of people in other despotic, bloody authoritarian regimes uh, who think, you know, the, in Islam, um, by being a martyr, you can take a whole lot of people out and, um, and go to heaven. And I just, it really worries me. There are so many people who think that this existence we have now is the dress rehearsal, the main event's up up there somewhere. That's scary. Pining, pining for the main event and hoping Armageddon happens just scares me it's senseless.
0: Well, do you, do you think that's a function of, you know, the, the system that's been put in place? I would posit that it that it is. You know, I think there was a, and we can see this based on the evidence, it looks like there was a fairly drastic decline in, both health and happiness, when people stopped moving around and and started aggregating together into civilizations. And part and parcel of that was that a hierarchy needed to be enacted. Because, you know, contrary to popular belief, people resisted civilization at at every junction. It was not a desired thing. It was only desired by a few. And so inherent within civilization is hierarchy. Inherent within civilization is slavery. And inherent within civilization is the real hierarchical structuring of religion to put some people above others and also to make this life maybe not as worthwhile as the next one. Because then, of course, if you're of service to the machine, you've got a better chance of being in heaven where finally you can enjoy life (laughs) or afterlife. (laughs)
1: Well, I'm frightened of actually spending eternity in heaven with my uh, mother's cousin Agnes. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> can I just have a, have a, I've got one of your protein shakes here. Can I just have a little sip? Okay,
0: <laughs> go, go for it, mate. Anytime.
1: <laughs> um, yeah, but, but yeah, you're, you're probably right. But see, I don't think, I don't think it, I don't think it was ordained because you're, you're assuming in some way that there is a, there is a, um, um, a roadmap? I don't think it is. I think that we, we as humans, have just taken the line of least resistance, as water does when it trickles down a mountain. It just, it's, it just drifted that way.
0: I don't, I agree. I don't believe there was a roadmap at all. What I believe is that there was greed, and there were enough technological advancements for there to be the ability to sort of sequester people within one area and try and lever that local e- ecology into providing for a surplus of grain allowing people to basically settle even further and in doing so you have for the very first time in history an imperative to accumulate because previous to that there's no imperative to accumulate right if you're traveling around you don't want to carry three pots you might as well carry one and have your buddy carry the other one and then you all share them right and so it makes sense i mean it's not that i i don't think we were kinder or gentler in pre-agrarian society i think it was just expedient to be g- generous and egalitarian
1: well it, well it was the banding together was the only way to survive really because there were there were wild things out there uh, that would eat you you know if you if you um couldn't run fast after your lunch you became lunch And you know? so that, it was kind of that, that whole and we drifted. I mean, division of labor. Some people were good at baking. Some people were good at minding the the cave. While others were out. Some were hunters. Some were farmers. And and I mean, that's that that's how that's how marketing began. I mean, I'm 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 I'm, I'm now totally um, enamored of that whole notion of adopting stoicism as our fundamental precept for morality and and and, and survival. Take and take god out of it and 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 mr jesus in other words the only people who are going to save us are ourselves and that's where i think creative creativity and 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 uh, and i'm using creativity in the broader sense one of the problems and having done this now for for a number of years both um in a consulting role and and now at university or is it that that uh, if you ask people if, if they think they're creative, they think that you're asking them, can I draw like Michelangelo? And, and that's, 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 not, that's not the essence of creativity at all. Uh, creativity yeah. is just um, um, seeing what everyone else has seen but thinking what no one else has thought and yeah. often, often putting different uh, things together uh, in, um, uh, sometimes in an, in, in an incongruous way. Yeah. I mean, Ma- 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 Mark Twain said that there's no, there's no new things. It's just we just take old things and put them in a kaleidoscope and they form a new pattern. Bill Gates, oh, not Bill Gates, um, Steve Jobs, it's the same thing. There are no new ideas. There's just old ideas um, reassembled.
0: And there must be, I believe, intention, passion and purpose involved with it. Otherwise, it, it it's not creative. It can be formulaic. And the, the reason I say that is now you're having... Yeah. You know, sonatas composed by computers, you're having algorithms that can write poetry and can write songs and can, you know, we can obviously replicate anything we see with a computer, but it doesn't make it art and it doesn't make it creative. It's just an algorithm. So what is the, the difference? And I've sort of grappled with this idea a lot. And I think the difference is that when you have something created by an algorithm, it might be a great representation of something. But there's not any desire for connection, whereas when people create art or they create I- anything, in fact, they're doing it because they feel hopefully passionate about it. And they're hoping to evoke something in someone else, whether it's, you know, helping them with a pain point or whether it's creating an emotion in that person. And so there's this it's bidirectional, you know, whereas mm-hmm. something that's created by an algorithm is basically just there. Yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah I, I think you did right and I think to me it's the difference between art and craft um yeah there are you, know, you you know, get on a bike and ride around Bali and you'll see some beautiful little wooden statue statuettes and you think that's amazing and the first person who, who did that probably a thousand years ago was the artist uh, Those little people who are sitting in and huts and repeating them uh, they're craftsmen they're not they're not artists. Uh, you did right the artist uh, art is actually um Neil Roberts who said I had the best evidence he said make them laugh make them cry make them think yeah uh, and and I think that that can apply in 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 movie making it can apply in in uh, in literature it can certainly apply and in, in, in painting and drawing but any anything that makes you laugh cry or think it shakes them out of a um a a pattern and makes them looking at th- makes them looking at, look at things differently, and that that's kind of my definition of, of what it's about. And in, 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 in art, um, there's no framework. In business, and that's I guess going back to what I'm trying to do with with teaching is to put a framework around it because you, to make it meaningful to anybody, you've got to have a frame around around a painting or, or, or a drawing. Otherwise, it's just scribbling on the wall. If you're Banksy, you can get away with scribbling on the wall. Um, but there has to, ha- but that in itself is his wall is the framework. You know, it, that's yeah. that, that's what gives it, it gives it meaning. Something very clever that is, a bit like a, a, a mandala mandala in, in Buddhism, it's it's there today and gone tomorrow. You know, it's that that whole notion of you can blow all the dust away once you once you made once you made that pattern. It's the you know the the uh, impermanence of uh, of life. But that's what makes it enjoyable, you know, doing, doing yeah. that crafting thing. And I'd love to think that in the next few decades, we're going to focus more and more on doing things, sitting around, enjoying ourselves, either with music or with art or, 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 or storytelling um, to give ourselves that meaning and, and doing those things better and better rather than making building taller buildings and faster cars and things that um, scratch the surface of the planet too much.
0: Yeah, the, the, a couple of things come up for me from based on what you just said. The, um, I remember back in the GFC, around 2008, I was living up in Canada, and the only industry from memory that didn't really collapse was uh, hospitality. And that was put down to the fact that people, you know, when they don't have a lot of money or when things aren't going well, they want to go out and seek solace and in, in drink, more or less. Yeah. But I, I think it's more than that. I, I think as well, you know, pubs were very busy, you know, places where people would go out and sure, have a drink, but that's just social lubrication. They were actually going out to find connection, I believe. Yeah. yeah. And and getting back to what was most important. And I certainly noticed back then, a lot of people were starting to talk about different things, you know, not just about their company growth and about this or that, but about getting back to what's essential, what's most important. And most of that involves people. It involves connection yep. and so all those things you're talking about with people being more creative really those are avenues for for real human cool. connection right
1: yep yep, yep. Hey tangada, hey tangada, hey tangada.
0: Yeah. Yeah. yeah Hey, and so one thing that strikes me as well is the, I, I think you, you obviously have a different experience to what, what i had in terms of art i was always told as a kid that i wasn't artistic and that was because my paintings weren't as good a replication of the thing we were looking at as the next person or my my pastel work wasn't quite so smooth it was bumpy you know so it didn't look quite as good and i think that was a real shame because i've come to learn or come to realize in in more recent years that i was always creative you know as a kid i i really loved bonsai and i still do that now and i use that as an analogy because you can put a plant in a pot and it's gardening You can grow a, a miniature tree and have it try and evoke, it doesn't have to look like a tree in nature, but it has to evoke the feeling and the emotion of nature. It's a completely different thing because it's it's highly curated. Every part of it is is there for a reason, <clears throat> whether you have a rock in the pot or whether you have it in a particular type of pot or whatever. But, I mean, that's art, right? Yep. Yeah. But it's, it's art expressed in, a, in quite a different way. And if people don't have... It's almost as if we consider creativity to not being actually creative. But creativity often in our formative years is seen as being analogous to replication. So where I'm going with this is I think a lot of people are, are almost trained out of being creative. And surely that has to have a really negative effect on how people can then approach challenges later in life whereas adults you know try and find creative solutions to problems because they they, they haven't ever had that faculty within them nurtured
1: oh yeah I'm, I'm, I'm absolutely sure that's right and i think that and the the other thing that uh, i believe that that we should be taught over um being sick of art and in, in form two, i think it was where, where um, we had to draw our um uh, the person the de- desk ne- next to us, and I was um, sitting next to a guy called Miles, somebody or other, doesn't matter. He had freckles, and so I spent probably half an hour putting his freckles in. I mean, the only thing I could think of that was, and and I got sent out of the room, you know, because I was teaching it trivially. But what what she hadn't taught us taught us, um, and she was she was a silly art teacher because, um, you know, I mean, there are rules uh, around. Drawing mathematical rules, um, which are universal. You know, for example, um, when you're drawing a face, a face, a, a small child will put the eyes somewhere up here. But in fact, the distance from there to there is the same as the distance from there to there. The eyes, are, your, your head is five eye widths apart. The distance that that is the same as that. You know, like there are. Once you draw an egg and. Very often now, just in business meetings, I'll, I'll talk to people about creativity and they, they kind of switch off or they'll glaze over. And I said, no look, you're, you're thinking wrongly about this. And creativity is really looking at stuff differently um, and looking at it looking at it upside down. In fact, one of the things that, that we found in, um, uh, in at art school was was to be able to um, look at your work upside down, uh, which shows it differently. So that, that for example, um, when, you, when you're learning perspective, you learn on a drawing board with a ruler, so you're vanishing points, so you understand vanishing points. So that, you know, we know since Brunelleschi's um, time that, that buildings don't get smaller as they go away from you. They just look smaller. So oh, and he was the first one to, to realise that, and you could do you know, some mathematical sums to make that work. And that's about, you know, vanishing points and lines. And but and it's fine when you're being taught um, perspective in, in, in an art room or on a drawing board. But when you're out in the field with an easel or a sketch pad and you're doing it freehand, uh, you'll make a mistake and your brain will correct it you know, um, or, or your brain won't recognise it. It's not till after you've finished you realise that there's a, a mistake there. We were taught that if you want to check your perspectives, um, uh, look at your work upside down. And you can do that with a sketch pad. You can't do that with a le- an easel on a drawing. You know, so you've actually got to – and so we were taught to bend over and look at our work upside down through our legs. But, <laughs> <laughs> at a time in my life when my gut wasn't quite so big, I could do that. No? <laughs> but that was, but that's a, way with, that's, that's a metaphor for looking at problems. How do, I look yeah. at How do I look at that? How can I turn this upside down? What would I do if I turned this on its head? What, what, what's, what's the space around the drawing like? What's, what's the space around the object like? Um, what would happen if we looked at it differently? Now, there's that great story yeah. in, um, oh shit, what's his name? Rory Sutherland, credit director of Ogilvy and Mather in London, um, about 99, 2000, they yeah, the, the the channel um, had gone through, and they were upgrading the British Rail was upgrading the track from London to Dover to link up with the uh, continental rail system. When they find it, it cost them six billion quid to uh, redo this line, and they went to Ogilvy and Mather and said that yeah, this is a wonderful bloody um, uh, development because it cuts the travel time to Paris by, by name. 35 minutes, whatever it was, doesn't matter. And he said, how much did that cost you? Yeah, six billion pounds. He said, I could have saved you five and a half billion um, because um, you know, I'd have had catwalk models walk up and down the down the train serving Bollinger. And so, <laughs> see, because you go to an engineer, he'll give you an engineering solution, which costs six billion pounds. Go to an ad guy, he'll teach, you, he'll give you a drinking solution which will cost a fraction of that. <laughs> and, and, and Because what was the question? Was it travel time or was it boredom? Yeah. Crikey, if Heidi Klum had been serving a uh, Bollinger on the train, it would have ketos, taken two weeks to get to Paris. So you've got to ask, you know, what's different? How can I? How can I? How can I ask, answer this in a in a different way? And we always, always tend to go to a solution based on our training. now yeah, yeah. to an engineer, you'll get an engineering solution. Yeah. Go go to a a a, a, a professor of, of keto. He'll give you a a protein solution. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever it is, you know. So, so you, you you kind of yeah, um you have to try on different lenses
0: and So you've made some pretty in, uh, interesting points there Mike what one I think is about tactics or you know t- tactics and structure so in the the artistic space but this applies to any area of life I think you know creativity is key and we don't foster that but alongside creativity we also need, to, to learn some rules. And I think you've always, you've often said that you need to learn the rules in order to break the rules. Yeah, yeah. Um, the other aspect obviously is perspective. And that's um, you know obviously something that's critically important. I think something we lose sight of because we're always enmeshed in what we're doing. And I think part and parcel of that is we do what we do, but we also do what we do for too long. For too long a stretch at a time, we don't get we don't give ourselves breaks. We don't give ourselves a chance to get a different perspective. We don't get different perspectives from other people. Yeah, we I, don't take enough psychedelics <laughs> to give you a whole different perspective on life. Yeah. Hey, maybe, maybe that's one of the reasons why people have breakthrough experiences. And there's, um, you know, emerging research that the use of psychedelics reduces negative societal outcomes for those people. They're less likely to you know, engage in criminal behavior. They're less likely to be as materialistic, things like that. Maybe it's nothing magical. Maybe it's just that that gives people a different perspective of life and they can actually realize that that the stuff they got tied up in wasn't that important.
1: Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. It's interesting, isn't it? When, and and the converse of that, um, I heard recently, I can't remember where it was, that, that um, talking about... Um, um, morality ordained by religion, particularly Christianity, and that's the big fight in in the US at the moment, particularly amongst the the Protestant evangelicals, um, is that um, if you remove Christianity, if you remove religion, you remove um, morality. And um, someone pointed out that um, the um, atheist um, cohort in the US is growing fast. The biggest concentration of believers in God is actually in American prisons, something like ninety-seven percent right. of prison inmates believe in, in in a higher being, and whereas the, the and and so, so you yeah, think to yourself, so, um, so morality can't be the, the the cure for for antisocial or or, or criminal criminal behaviour, and I yeah. think, I think that that again is, extends on what we've been talking about um, in terms of stoicism and the fact that we all now realise. That this isn't planet Cliff or planet Michael. This is planet Earth, and we all have a right to be here, and we all have a place. How can we find that place? Um, and I mean, maybe, maybe that's it. Maybe we should actually encourage you know, um, planned use of, of psychedelics to like, actually. <laughs> well, you uh, know, I'm a big, I'm <laughs> a big believer in that, Michael. I know, but no, no, I'm just saying. Let, 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 ask a question. Hang on, that's interesting. Yeah, that's interesting. How? Yeah, how come? Um, most of the people who are criminals are in prison, believe believers, <laughs> are in prison. <laughs> of course, they, most of the criminals who are in prison are believers. Uh, um, yeah. and, and so that can't be the cure. So let's actually question that and say, okay, start again.
0: That's a uh, You make a really good point, because I wonder if there's something on a far larger scale than we had recognised before about the inherent problems with the carrot and the stick. You know, we we know from the evidence now that the the carrot and the stick mentality to action is is not a good driver of motivation. So you can punish people, but it doesn't really stop them from doing it. Even if we reward them, particularly with, you know, financial or or consumer or material incentives, that doesn't drive them in the long term either. So I wonder if the promise of heaven versus hell is not really a good predictor of how people are going to act. You know, the the biggest drivers of motivation that we know of are are things like community, support, culture, um, you know, positive social pressure, things like that. I'm sure you're right. I don't know. I mean, you you brought up a bloody good um, tangent to it. And I've I've only, I've thought about that mostly in, in respect to, you know, interpersonal dynamics. How do we motivate, like how do I motivate our employees? The best way I don't believe is to, you know, put them on a commissions-based sales structure because we know that that works in the short term, but long term it's pretty disincentivizing. Um, people, when they're asked, you know, what's the, the thing they enjoy most about being in a particular company, culture comes number one. What's culture? You know, culture is a milieu of all these things going on in terms of positive social pressures and all sorts. And so, yeah, with that idea of, like you were talking about before, morality from religion and probably not leading to any improvement in social outcomes. I mean, it, it probably just is another indicator that the carrot and the stick don't really work in the long-term. No, no.
1: and, I, and I think, oh, and you did write about culture. I mean, in and, and any organization, any group, culture eats strategy for breakfast. If if the culture is wrong, it's um, you no, know, and, 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 and that's always top-down. Yeah, it's 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 not don't do as I do, um, don't don't do as I say, do as I do. Um and I know that that certainly um in my experience, particularly in creative businesses like agencies, um, I think the um and I, I, I guess it was my own experience because I started well, we started at Colenza when I was I was twenty two. I just turned twenty two. And um given responsibility and um, I was the general manager, I mean my partners, of course, they were very old. They were 28 and 29. But, but <laughs> at the same time, um, I, I had responsibility at a very early age. And if you're reasonably conscientious and you know kind of what you're doing and you believe in what you're doing, you can take stuff on and you learn so much stuff. Um, and that, and for me, that's what ended up in the periodic table of innovation. I mean, sure, I changed direction a few times and I've taken the scenic route through life, but I'm, I'm pleased with that. And having done that now, I, I, I really want to be able to, to help people do the same thing by bringing their creativity to the fore not their accounting skills um, yeah. because i think that that yeah see when we started colenso we were um, most of our clients there was no price Waterhouse, there was no mckinsey there was no boston consulting whatever it was we did all that stuff right we were ideators we weren't just um advertising we didn't just do the the ads were part of it but we also uh, you know went through whole business strategy and and product development with with our clients I Remember Vern King, one of you know, our early shareholders, went around the entire country with salon Trotter designing all the Wright uh, Stevenson um, stores. You know, he did everything wow. from store design to to the logos to you know um, workflow systems and so on. And then um, in the mid 80s, early 90s, uh, when the, the agency business became deregulated and, and separated between media and and creative, um, the agencies chose. To go with the creative but they think oh the, the clients can't do that so we'll do it the problem there is that the clients don't really value it and and the the, the money to make those big commercials came through the media commissions and so when the media agencies have sort of separated off the the agencies lost that revenue stream couldn't play pay good dollars lost uh, a lot of good people and just became the coloring in department you know, mm. and and price Waterhouse, um boston um, and McKinsey came in and did all that strategic, but which is they pay the big money for, because they didn't know how to value. You know, the accountants say, you know, the cost of everything and the value of nothing. You know, because they they, they 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 look at stuff and you know thinking and they think of stuff on a head hours basis. Yeah. How many hours does it take? Because they get paid on the hourly basis. They can't understand it's another way of rewarding people. Because they you don't they don't know how to value ideas. Just as when I was 17, they didn't know, you know how to value um, my A in oil painting as opposed to someone who got 85, 85 and mass. bastards. And and that's that's the other thing too because um, the guys who, who who were in my class and the ones the one who actually got first place in class, to become an accountant and a merchant banker, and I hate those bastards with a passion. <laughs> it's a deep and personal wound. So, if there's anything I can do to redress that huge injustice that was done to me way back there in the, in the 60s, then I will do it. And so, I, I think, I mean, look, I'm going to make, as a New York once, we were on an a, um, agency scholarship, and we were having dinner in some, I think it was the Rockefeller Center, way up. And, um, um, and Paul said, look look out the windows, above the 23rd floor and all those buildings you can see, as far as the eye can see, there'll be uh, accountants and finance um, companies. It's the fire economy that drives the world. Fire meaning, meaning um, um, finance, industri- uh, um, uh, insurance and real estate. And that's what we measure. And societies are known by uh, what they measure. And we measure money. I mean, for thousands yeah. of years, for thousands of years, the biggest buildings in town weren't the accounting firms and, 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 and the insurance companies. They were churches and temples and and yeah. th- because that's where the money flowed. Now, at least we had some kind of uh, understanding of them thinking about what's what's life about, what's the meaning of life. Ignore, uh, I guess, the interim. Uh, since, since Christianity and, and Islam, uh, a lot of uh, iniquity has been sort of perpetrated the name of, of, of religion. But before that, um, I mean, for example, Buddhists, they, they don't have a goddess, such. or well, Shinto in Japan. There's no god and this. is just uh, worship of the earth and ancestors and and, and thankfulness for the stuff in it. You yeah. know? And so it's only when we say, now, hang on, I've got this uh, one true god and I'm going to kill you because yours isn't as good as mine. And so, yeah, when you listen to people like... like um, um, Christopher Hitchens, yeah, asking you which God do you believe in? Any one of the three thousand that's out there, uh, or is it just? And know no, it was, it was um, yeah, it was Christopher Hitchens. I'm sure who said that. Uh, um, whoever his his, his um, questioner was. There's no real difference between him. He said, you come you, you from a world where, where there are 3,000 gods. Uh, yeah. I, I come from a world where there are 3,000 gods. You come from one. So we're only 2,999 short of of what the real facts are. And it's only when we have those differences and belief. And the thing that that, that, that I really rail against is fixed belief and, the, yeah. and coming back to creativity. Let's you know, let our minds free will. Let's open our minds up. Let's look at things differently. And hopefully there's a better world coming out of it
0: and i guess that's not limited just to to religion either i mean oh, no. political ideology um, yeah, nationalism yeah. i mean nationalism's one of the funniest ones because you know you believe that you're superior by virtue of the country that you just happen to be born in
1: yeah. Yeah. which
0: if, if anyone analyzes that rationally they would understand that it's complete bullshit yeah. and yet we all buy into it to some degree you know we all get that little bit jingoistic parochial you know and since I, I think since I've started really grappling with these ideas and and not just trying to know them, but really trying to understand what's going on, I've become a lot less stressed about things like the All Blacks losing.
1: Yes, <laughs> oh, I, yeah. and I, I do I, I only dislike it when they get beaten by England. I, I think uh, I thought the opposite. Well,
0: that's, yeah, of course. Ever, well, no yeah, one likes yeah, that.
1: Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, uh, even I,
0: South Africa, I can. Yeah, no.
1: I, <laughs> I can... Even Australia, I can just cope with. <laughs> sure. I can't. But, but, but yeah, the, 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 it doesn't matter. It, it doesn't matter. Uh, yeah. the, 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 and I've decided that my answer to everything in life is um, it all depends.
0: Uh, hey, well, Mike, here's a, an idea for you. Which has just popped into my mind, thankfully. That perhaps people do get so tied up with things like that because they actually don't have a, a life that involves some creative pursuit, passion, you know, innovation. I, I think that you know, think about it this way: if you work in a job that you don't like all day, mm-hmm. and then you come home and you've got nothing that you're really passionate about, the proxy is that you're going to sit in front of television. Yep. Yeah. And for a lot, a lot of people, I think the passion that they can draw from life revolves around a sports team. Oh,
1: yeah.
0: And so, of course, that's your thing, right? Yeah. But to, to me, that's so limiting because I can love rugby and I can watch it and I can get into it, but it's not going to be the beginning and the end because no. there's things I'm passionate about, like my family and, you know, the my, my, I love my work yeah. and I love doing the odd painting here and there even though they're terrible and i love doing my bonsai and stuff like that these are things that i'm passionate about because they are creative and fun and i'm you know there's something more there i would hate to think that if i didn't have all those things i would become really i I would just by by proxy i think become far more what's the term just far more committed to to those things that are inconsequential
1: Yeah, and I think that that's one of the good things about this country too, is that is that we tend to be participants rather than spectators, and I think that's right. part, part, Partly a function of our size, but every one of us knows someone who's famous, and we all know an All Black or a TV star or whatever it is. So, so um, success isn't a stranger to us. You know, we're we 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 it's only an arm's length away and yeah. I think that that I know when I did my thesis so that the insight to me is that we're actually like hobbits we're brave little people from the bottom right hand corner of the world yeah. we are brave not because we're particularly courageous we're just too stupid to be scared no we're, we're, we're in a, a lovely naivety and I think that that would not happen that would not happen if we were in Mumbai or or, 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 or the US and I was thinking about that this this morning The the, the black caps are having been beaten by Australia, shock horror, but, but that they, they're off to India now. Now, there is um, 11, say 15 people, I don't know, 20 people in the in the squad heading off um, to, to, to a country with 1.4 billion people, and there'll be 11 guys on the field for both teams. The chances of you being one of the 11 from New Zealand are 400 times higher uh, than there would be one of the 11 from India. Yeah. And, I, and I think that that in itself enables us to be, feel very grateful that we're in a country where we do care about that much we' we're, and we're quite a secular country uh, which I think is a good a good safe thing uh, I'd love to think that that um, Brian tamaki and those big evangelical churches have to start paying tax and take them um, out of the out of the framework so that the money can go to, to proper things um but I think that, that that and I think that will happen over time because we will become a a secular country and the more secular we come I hope we can adopt stoicism as our fundamental philosophy not a religion just a philosophy of looking after each other and accepting things as they are and uh, yeah. there's a and and taking it in a stride i mean we all know we've all had tragedy in our lives we've all had we've all had had, 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 had um, misfortune we've all had you know, ups and downs that we've had to cope with It's a sort of lovely personally that yeah. everyone is fighting their own battles and try not well, to be a bastard you know, it's just just, it's just just do those things that, that, you know, make life worth living. And you, going back to exactly what you said, that's about doing your bonsai or playing your guitar. And I spoke to Roger, my, my mate, the other day. He's got an amazing collection collection of guitars. But he's just bought himself a, a new Fender. You know, and he's just, and he just, I, I, I've never heard him play an entire song all the way through, but he just strums chords and just yeah. jams sometimes just, and, and, and it's, it's his little heaven you know and, and you think
0: maybe he and gary can form a band oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, <exactly. laughs> yeah he probably would too yeah
1: exactly yeah, but yeah yeah but that's that's, it.
0: that's do, it do you think that um the the march towards secularism while positive might be tempered by the fact that we've got this very toxic social media environment where right. you know things are polarized people become yeah. Yeah. extremists by nature of the algorithm. Yeah. And we're seeing the rise of that American-style sort of Trumpist politicking here. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you see it in the... um You know, whether people are opposed to vaccines, mandates, or whatever, or not, I think is beside the point. We're seeing that those movements are becoming a little bit of a Trojan horse for the alt-right now. Yeah.
1: yeah.
0: And that's, that's really worrying. You know, when you see... I, I know that they put a different spin on it, but when you see MAGA... And don't tread on me, QAnon flags tied in amongst that. To me, that's that's really worrying.
1: Oh, oh it is, and and, and and that to me, what started out to be the most magnificent thing—the democratization of media—has um, turned out to be totally corrupt and 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 counterproductive in the end, you know, because it it it, does, it destroys thought, you know, it destroys, and that's why I'm, I'm, my next blogs going to be on um um the stupid age going from the space age to the stupid age you'd think in an era when, when when we're you know so far advanced in some level but there's a whole lot of people who live under rocks that have now come out and had voice and and, and given voice to, to stuff that just, just ain't so as as Josh Billings the famous armchair philosopher said 150 years ago it ain't so much that folks is ignorant just they know so many things that just don't ain't so you know, and and <laughs> yeah. uh, uh, and, and that knowledge of stuff because uh, so, you know, it's the Dunning-Kruger syndrome, it's, it's uh, um, yeah, the dumber people are, the brighter they think they are. I mean, that was, I thought the Dunning-Kruger thing should be expounded to everybody. And there are two things I'd like to revive and, and teach in schools, Dunning-Kruger and Parkinson's law you know? um, because one of the things that we also face in, in, in a democracy, and, and I'm no great defender of democracy because it, it leads to exactly what, what, uh, what you're saying. D- democracy has to be tempered uh, with, with rules and reason, and it ain't. And, and social media is not tempered with, uh, with, with, well, a few rules are coming in, but they're their rules. Um, yeah. Um, I, I, I find it shocking that that you know, and they they, um, um, and they 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 pulled my book off the Facebook shelves because it had a naughty word in it. You know, um, but the the um, uh, they're allowed to um, uh, telecast murders. The, the, the stuff that they get away with um, is just so abjectly careless in terms of curation and, and competition, and that 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 really worries me. I've sort of got a good mind to. Cancel all my Facebook wedding um, connections because it's it just it's just wrong. You know, I'd rather go for. A, but it's on the other hand, because um, social media has has cannibalised so much of, of 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 mass media, they can't pay enough to have good journalists. And I think that you know, I'd like to think that you know, the New Zealand Herald, which is now the Harvey Norman Herald, uh, it should become. Um, <laughs> they should hire people who can spell you know it would be it'd be quite nice to have people who, who are a little bit more erudite on on some of these channels and now you see murdoch of course just spouting um, arch right-wing stuff because it feeds the, yeah. the inner anger of people with low iqs
0: so i mean we, we may need to um you know discuss this in depth at another time but what what do you think can be done about that? Because, you know, social media is so ubiquitous. There are a couple of platforms that basically hold all of the audience. And like, what's the option? I, I see a lot of people starting to go off social media, yeah. but that doesn't necessarily help because that only helps them.
1: Yeah.
0: You know, I also see other platforms, you know, that are ostensibly free speech platforms springing up. Uh, But the majority of those are really just echo chambers for the alt-right. And the one that was perhaps, you know, had the the greatest potential is also become an echo chamber for the alt-right. So where's that that fine line or where's that balance between, you know, completely free speech and curation or moderation that doesn't impede things that shouldn't be impeded?
1: Well, to me, it goes back to the old saying that people who um, uh, are known to speak their mind often don't have much on it. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So I, yeah, I don't. I was know.
0: talking about that with Kent Brooks, um, yeah. you know, my, my good buddy, my best mate, uh, bassist in like a storm the other day, and we were both discussing this idea of how. Now it's not just that everyone has an opinion, but because everyone has an opinion in a platform, everyone's become a pundit, yeah. and it just feeds what you were talking about before. It feeds that Dunning Kruger idea, yeah. and you know I think all of us, myself included, I need to pull myself back from it a lot when I'm you know thinking, well, I, I've got something to say, and I'm a you know relatively intelligent guy. I can probably have a decent opinion on a lot of things, but should I? No. Should I really be no. posting my opinion about something that is not within? My sphere and I think maybe there's a good case for a lot of people to stick to their knitting which of course I'm not doing in talking no, to no you no on this podcast.
1: <laughs> but, but at least we're bringing to it a sense of um uh, direction or, or or framework to uh, to to house what we do think you know, so that, that, that there are to me um I look at it through the lens of stoicism yeah, yeah. and and the lens the stoicism and creativity um, are my lenses if you like um yeah. Shit happens. Um, you got to play the hand that that that, um, that life deals you. Um, you got to be fairly kind, and I love that you know, the the old Quaker saying: um, "Speak your mind, but it has to be two or three things. It's got to be true, um, kind, and necessary." So I, yep. two of those three. So if if, if it's if it's true uh, and necessary, speak it. Uh, if it's true and kind, speak it. But yeah, you know, it may not be necessary. So, in other words, make sure that you've actually fulfilled two of the objectives.
0: Why don't we add funny to that, and then we've got the perfect scenario. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah.
1: yeah. Like, yeah, funny, funny is good. Um, and, yeah, I, it, and that's it. You know, because yeah, I was at boarding school at age seven, and 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 um, I learned that um, in order to stop people bashing up, you had to make them laugh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So I think that we should actually equip our army with a whole lot of jokes you know, and so, so we would get attacked by the Chinese or whatever. I don't know. It would have to have some jokes in Mandarin. Well, that's the other thing too. I mean, when I look at it now, <laughs> everyone's fearful of China. Yeah? And I, think, I think I'm more fearful of America. All those people who are waiting for Am- Armageddon. Yeah, you know, they're going to push the button. It's probably
0: more unstable. Yeah,
1: because they, they, they're all going to go to heaven. You know? Like, what? At least the Chinese don't believe that. You no, know? and so they're not going to pull the pin and, and take everyone down with them. I think that that's you know, that's another thing. And, and and I think oh yes, but yeah, you know, the Chinese, the the, the the Aussies have got a nuclear sub. What do they want a nuclear sub for? For goodness sake, you know, it, it's going to last two and a half seconds. It gives, and then when you look at the world. The China, that we are worried about the Chinese taking building some islands in the South China Sea and yada yada yada. I saw a map the other day of all the U.S. bases um, in the world in the Asia Pacific region. Yeah. There are a myriad, all oh all yeah. pointing at China. At least China doesn't have any down here. Or, or, well, I mean or, I, that's or, the old,
0: yeah. you know, the old scenario that you and I have discussed on a number of occasions. This, you know, the the sort of Association bias we have towards countries like the states because you know they were our allies and the or we were their ally, more you know aptly put in the first and second world wars, um, and through other wars throughout the twentieth century. And so we tend to default to the position that they're the good guys. And I'm not saying that they're not the good guys, but I'm not saying that they're not the bad guys either. I think we just need to be far more pragmatic about how we look at global geopolitics because hey. I think firebombing Tokyo and carpet bombing Dresden and things like that were equally abhorrent to yeah. a lot of the things that have been done by others.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, the firebombing of Tokyo killed more than Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you did right. I mean, and I think that, that uh, who would you trust? Who would you trust more? I mean, and at least the Chinese have got a 5,000 year old civilization behind them. And almost all the things that, that you know, the, in fact, Gary did a, an amazing documentary where he was up uh, in. In Asia, on 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 Chinese inventions, actually tap into them for that because you know, everything from seism- seismographs to gunpowder to lens—it's um, it's, all—it's all there. Yeah. Yeah. And anyway, yeah, um, we can go on for a, three or four hours on this, but um, <laughs> I, I think that that is. But it's it's the lens that we look at life through. What can we do about it? Nice. I think we can be a creative stoic lens to 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 start. Uh, right. can we change what can we what what can we accept um you know, how can we be reasonable and you know, maybe it's a new political party i think you'd actually you'd actually do quite well actually the prime minister <laughs>
0: a few people have been saying that but I, cool. I don't know if i'm prepared to um uh, oh, get right. mired in the shit
1: <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll give that a nanosecond thought yeah, yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. so michael i always like to leave people with some practical take-homes um, and I thought that there were three questions that you could answer really well. Given that, you know, maybe we don't foster creativity and, and innovation as much as we should, what would you say, what advice would you give to a recent school leaver or someone about to leave school to help them find their best path
1: in life? Um, well, I think that, that, that there are three questions you gotta ask yourself in, from, from the word go is, is um, decide what you don't like. Uh, in this world, it's not so much we're choice rich, and um, we're just time poor. There are so many things we can do. We've got to eliminate the things that, that 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 we don't want or shouldn't do. You know, just I shouldn't. I should have, for example, eliminated the thought of going into law. That was crazy. So you've got to think. So what is it? What is it um, you don't like? What is it you don't want to do? What kind of people make you feel a little bit uncomfortable? And and. It's easier as you get older because you've had to make more experience. But when you're younger, you think, what makes your skin crawl? You know, when do you actually just feel in your gut uh, that you shouldn't be here, you don't like doing that, you don't like watching those sort of things, you don't like being that bunch of friends or whatever it is? So, And write it down. So this is what you don't want to do, this is what you, this is, this is what you don't like. Second thing, uh, what do you want out of your life? And when you're younger, it's, it's simple. You want money, you want to buy a house and a car and Look after yourself, but as you grow older, uh, you might want wealth to look after yourself in your retirement, whatever it is. But you also might want fame. You might want to, you know, your photograph on the cover of I don't know, Vogue magazine or Time magazine or whatever it is. Or you might want to save the planet. Yeah, you, know? you might want to do it as a, and you write it down. Just a few. There's probably six lines. And finally, when are you at your best? Are you a morning yeah. person or a night person? Are you a solo player or a team player? And if it's a team, what kind of a team? You know, is it like a running a relay race where you run and pass the baton on and someone else runs their leg? Or is it like a rugby team or a basketball team where you actually have to act in concert all the time with you know, 14, 15 other people? And are you best in New Zealand or in Italy? Uh, are you in the bush, uh, by the sea, up a mountain, um, on the beach? Uh, in New York. Uh, yeah, yeah, right. And then you'll find you've got a very short page of your best place. Yeah. What don't you want? What do you want long term? And where, where are you when, when you want it? And it should take four or five lines, six lines maybe. And you'll think, Jeepers, I'm doing none of those. No wonder you're not happy. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and so uh, I wrote a book called Racks and Grow Rich about 10 years ago. Uh, Harper Collins published it, and the managing editor asked if she could say a few words at the um, at the book launch. I said, "Oh yeah, sure. Yeah, why, why not?" And uh, anyway, so uh, she turned up, and uh, unbeknownst to me, she said, "Oh, look, this is an amazing manuscript. The best uh, book I've written in terms of a uh, uh, philosophy." He said, "In fact, I, I've taken it on board so much. I'm here hereby announcing my resignation. I'm going out only the gig economy." Really? It blew me, away. Like,
0: wow, that's amazing.
1: Yeah. <laughs> So, so yeah, just those simple things, you know, are you happy? Are you happy if you're not? Stop what you're doing. Change it. Change it. Yeah. The best hey, way. that's... Yeah, sorry. Okay, go on.
0: No, no, no that, that's awesome. I, I was going to ask you another question, but I'm not going to, because I, I think that is a really good little framework that people could go away and do as a, as an exercise. Um, to help them live with more passion and purpose. I think that's a a great way to finish it off. So thanks, Mike. Um, It's always a pleasure chatting with you. We're going to have to do this again because we only opened the door to a few topics that we didn't really um, go through.
1: You're going to have to stop me next time. It's it's all good. It's brilliant. Thanks, Cliff. Thanks, Mike.
0: Thanks for listening to Cliff Dogs Podcasts. Subscribe to the cast, your favorite podcast
1: channel. Check out the articles and member only content at cliffharvey.com. And if you're interested in studying to become a registered health coach, accredited
0: sports nutritionist, or registered clinical nutritionist, head over to the Holistic Performance Institute at holisticperformance.institute.
1: Bye.